You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. If you're just visiting with us or new to UPC, we've been having this conversation about justice, a sermon series, uh, coming to the end of it today. And, you know, the question I want to deal with is how does justice become a lifestyle? Not just a sermon series, not just an ideal value that we all aspire to, but actually, you know, a lifestyle, boots on the ground, a journey, a walk. Um, And I think the answer to this comes from the prophets, and in particular, a guy named Micah who lived in the 8th century, a working class guy just outside of Jerusalem, uh, who calls Israel in his day to a prophetic walk. You might know the name Rachel Den- Denhollander. Uh, Rachel was the first woman to stand up to Larry Nasser, USA Gymnastics and Michigan State. And she was therefore the last one to give her impact statement to the courtroom. And her statement is fantastic. It went viral and she became kind of f- famous for that and, and uh, was doing a bunch of interviews. And uh, one of the interviewers uh, noticed, you know, that she had forgiven Larry Nasser and was impressed with that. And she said, you know, she has a concern actually about this. That she is a Christian herself, but what she's noticed is in the aftermath is impact statement, her new celebrity, Christians have focused on the forgiveness part and not so much on the justice part. And so she talked about this a little bit. She told one interviewer, every single Christian publication or speaker that's mentioned my statement has only ever focused on the aspect of forgiveness. Very few, if any of them, have recognized what else came with the statement, which was a swift and intentional pursuit of God's justice. Both of those are biblical concepts. Both of those represent Christ. We do not do well when we focus only on one of them, forgiveness and not justice, or justice and not forgiveness. Now, in the 8th century, Micah stitched these two things together in a way that's wonderful. And he calls us to a prophetic walk. So uh, Will did a great job reading the scripture for us, but I want us all to really notice it. So uh, please open up a Bible to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. We're just going to read one of those verses. And uh, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand so we can all read aloud together and respect for the one who inspired it. Micah 6, verse 8, page 757. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. You might keep the Bible open. We're going to look at it. But notice this immediately, justice and uh, mercy. Justice and mercy. That's what the prophetic walk is all about. Now, this makes my brain hurt. I've been taught that justice is getting what you deserve and mercy is not getting what you deserve. So I'm going, how... How can you do both? How could you resolve the tension between them? And the answer is, maybe you don't. Bruce Walkey, the Old Testament scholar, uh, he tells us that the two words Micah is using here uh, both speak of 
the deliverance of an oppressed, weaker party by a stronger party. One of those words is the word tzedakah. We've been talking about it just means justice or righteousness. The other word is chesed, fun to say. Uh, it means God's mercy, kindness, or steadfast love. And both of them, Bruce Walkie says, speak of the deliverance of an oppressed, weaker party by a stronger uh, party. He, he says you might think of, of the justice word as an action, and you might think of the mercy word as an attitude, and in that way, he's trying to resolve the tension, and maybe that works. But I, I think Micah goes even deeper than that, not so much inviting us to resolve the tension in some abstract definitional way, but actually to integrate the tension into the ways in which we walk in the world. That's why he calls us to walk humbly with our God. And I like to suggest for us today that uh, justice becomes a lifestyle when we walk humbly with our God, when it becomes a walk, a humble walk with God. For me, Brian Stevenson has been a great example of a humble walk with God. If you've had a chance to read his book, uh, you see that already. If you haven't, I want to invite you to read. We're all reading together this, this uh, winter, Just Mercy. Uh, the main character of the book is a guy named Walter who's completely innocent, but he's been put on death row. And so the story is kind of his, uh, Brian's walk as a lawyer with uh, Walter, this defendant. But if you step back, it's really, it's almost a coming of age story. It's kind of about Brian Stevenson, this Harvard trained lawyer's walk with God as he walks with a lot of defendants who are in prison. The book doesn't talk a lot about God. Um, you have to dig a little bit deeper to know what's motivating Brian Stevens. He gave an interview with uh, New York University Law School where he's a professor. It's a great article you can find online. His parents were constantly wondering, why you know, are you using your education to do this? You know, this is something, by the way, a lot of our students have to wrestle with when they go on deputation or uh, go on mission trips and you got this great resume. You're Harvard trained. You know, you're a lawyer and, 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 and you get low paying salary. You're in a dingy office. The hours are super long and you're hanging around people and horrendous crimes. And his mom in particular couldn't get it. She's like, go for the salary, Brian. Go for the salary. You should be in New York. To help them understand one time, he sent them a a videotape. He, he'd grown up in the AME church, African Methodist Episcopal. And one day they invited him to speak to a whole convention of leaders in the AME church. And as he's speaking, he re references Matthew 25. This is a, a passage in which Jesus is telling a story about the future. And, and Jesus says, you know, uh, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the people in the story are going like, well, when did we ever see you that way? And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And Brian sends this videotape to his mom and dad as if to say, this is why I'm doing this. I want to be where God is. I want to do what God is doing in the world. And just before she died, his mother, uh, virtually on her deathbed, gave an interview with the Washington Post. And this is what she said. Now that I've been sick, I see that Brian is right. Really, what are we here for? We're here to help one another. That's it. She got it. A humble walk 
with God. That's a prophetic walk. We see it in Brian's life. I guess I want to know what it would look like in my life. What, what is this humility of which Micah speaks? What does that mean? There's a pastor of the church that church loved the pastor and they thought he, this guy is so humble. They gave him a badge. It said most humble person on the, on the planet. And then when he wore it, they took it away from him, right? So <laughs> what, is, what is this humility? Well, well, let me suggest this. A prophetic walk requires the kind of humility that allows us to hear hard things. Did you hear that? That's, that's my first point. The, 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 a prophetic walk requires the humility to hear hard things, uncomfortable things, things we might not want to hear, but true things. Notice how the passage begins in chapter 6, verse 1. It's with the word hear, listen. God so often calls us to hear, to listen. In this paragraph, God is calling Micah to hear. He's calling the mountains to hear. He's calling his people to hear. Actually, this is what we call a prophetic lawsuit. This is a standard form in the prophetic literature. The word, there's a technical term for lawsuit in Hebrew, and it's showing up three times in this paragraph. It's translated as case, controversy, controversy. God is calling Micah as prosecuting attorney. He's calling Israel as defendant. He's calling all the mountains to listen as jury. I have a case against my people, God says. Not only have they left God behind, but they've left behind justice. And he takes them to court. And the, the passage says uh, God will contend with Israel. God is contending with Israel. And so they have to listen. They have to hear. Now, here's what impresses me. It's that they did hear. It's, it, it, there's something about Israel that made them want to hear the hard things. And I admire that so much in Israel. They weren't always obedient, but they were, they were listening when they needed to listen. The reason I know that is they saved this passage. If they hadn't listened, this passage would have never been in this book. And in fact, when you look at the prophetic literature, it's, it's replete with instances where God has a controversy with his people, where he's saying, you know, I'm actually not on your side, I'm against you. This to me is really authenticating. If, if I were going to make up a religion, I, I would want to make up a religion that has sacred texts that all say my adherents are, are the best. They succeed. They're good people. My adherents are the kind of people that I want on my team. I am with them, right? And here there's sacred texts that say my adherents actually kind of blow it constantly. My adherents actually are rebels and I'm actually not on their side. God says I'm on the opposite side from my people. And they cherish that literature. God loves rebels. Oh, my people, I have something hard to say to you. Now, I, 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 I dare to suggest, I'll say it as politely as I can, I don't think we're very good at listening today. I know I'm not. We insist today on, quote, safe spaces where we can hear what we already believe. We police people's thoughts to bring everybody into conformity with what they, we think they sh should believe. We break up into tribal camps where our biases are reinforced. If you want, you can find a church on the left that believes like you do on the left. You can find a church if you're on the right that's a right-leaning church. And we never have to be bothered by anybody who has an insight on something that's, that, that's different from what you know, we already see. 
when Ron Sider was here last fall, he said to us, it's not, what's plaguing our country is, in these divisions is not that we disagree with one another. We can't disagree with one another because in order to disagree with one another, you actually have to listen to one another. We don't disagree with one another. We're talking past each other. We're can't, we can't hear each other. We're not listening. Here's a caution. If your God always agrees with you, you're in a very dangerous place. You are not worshiping the real God. You are worshiping almighty self. And this is why it is so important for people who care about justice to hear, to listen, to be willing to open up not just our ears but our minds to the possibility that we may not be part of the solution entirely. We may at least in part be part of the problem. Wow, I don't want to hear that, but maybe I need to. We need to be a people who listen. Men, it's time for us to listen to women and ask ourselves, maybe there are things, whether we, there are things that we have done or are, are doing right now that make the world unsafe for the people in our lives. And those of us who are white, we need to listen to people of color and consider the possibility that there may be some things that we do to gain an advantage that actually disadvantages people of color. Those of us who have plenty of food and sit at a table where we feast regularly need to listen to people around the world who, who are hungry so that we can see our common bond of humanity with them, that they are our family too. Justice requires listening. It might just be today that God is contending with me. I don't know, maybe he's contending with you as well, but I know if he is, it's because he wants you to have a bigger vision of what goodness really is. He wants you to see more of life, not less of life. He wants to, as Jesus said to his followers, give us joy. And so we listen. We have the humility to listen. We walk humbly with God. A prophetic walk requires not only the humility to listen, but secondly, the humility to identify ourselves with those who are disadvantaged. A prophetic walk requires the humility to identify ourselves with the disadvantaged. Notice verse 4. There's a little history lesson here. God says, I brought you up. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I am the God who identifies with those who are disadvantaged for whatever reason. Now here, Micah is being very consistent with all the prophets who constantly call Israel to care for those whom Nicholas Walterstorff at Yale University calls the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable in the Bible are, are the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. They were vulnerable in that day, in Israel's day, particularly in the 8th century, and they continue to be vulnerable in our day as well. Not only those, others also. People of disadvantage. And God wants his people to know, I identify with them. If you want to find me, you will find me with them. If you want to see me at work, you will see me at work with them. Israel, your own experience of salvation ought to teach you this. I brought you up from Egypt. <laughs> Remember how disadvantaged you were. You were slaves. You were being oppressed by Pharaoh. And was I with the Pharaoh? No, I was with you. I brought you up. Here's what happens with me. I tend to focus on my own disadvantages. 
Uh, we call that self-pity. I'm really good at this. I see my own need. But here's what I also know. I am never happier than when I am taking care of other people's needs. Do you, do you know what I mean? When I sit in that circle uh, at AA, when I serve in the UU District Food Bank, and I become aware of the needs of other people, my needs are like, whoo, I got a lot going on. I got a lot of advantages in my life compared to this person. And you know, that actually makes me feel happier. I feel grateful, not just to know that I'm helping other people, but to reframe my life in the light of what God has done and who he is in, in my life. Just last fall, I read in the New York Times, interesting article, about a study done at the University of Zurich that actually has given empirical evidence to support that what Jesus taught us is true, that it's better to give than to receive. They gave $25 to uh, all the subjects in the, in the study, and half of them were supposed to spend that money every week on somebody else, and half were spending it on themselves, and you know who was happier? Uh, when they did, they, they did took this fMRI data, and, and the people who were spending money on other people we're happier. See, justice requires listening. Mercy requires us to identify ourselves with the disadvantaged. And that takes a kind of a humility. But this is where we'll see God at work. Let me read to you quickly two Proverbs. You might want to just write this down for later. Two Proverbs show how tightly God identifies with the disadvantaged. Proverbs 14.31 and Proverbs 19.17. In 1431, we read this, those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but those who are kind to the needy honor him. If you oppress the poor, you are insulting God, that one's saying. Now, that's kind of the negative side of it. The positive side is here, Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. You kind to the poor, you give to the poor, it's like lending to God. God, you need a, you need a loan? I'm... And, and, and here's the promise associated with that. You will be repaid in full. Not just financially, but in terms of a blessing of a deeper, more joyful life. It might just be that God is meeting our needs as we meet the needs of others, and that we meet him there. I mean, this is what Brian Stevenson has said in Matthew 25. Jesus himself says, hey, they say, well, Lord, when did we see you? And Jesus says, well, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was in prison. Jesus is so identifying with those who are in those situations that when we meet them, we're actually meeting Jesus. There was a wealthy woman who, when she was putting her estate in order, had to find an heir. She had no children. She thought first about her nephew. She liked him, and he was always very friendly to her when he was around her. But she had a lot of money, and she wanted to know that her, her heir would be a good, wise uh, generous steward of her resources. So here's what she did. She dressed up one day like a beggar and lay down on the uh, bottom step of his townhouse uh, stoop. That morning when he came out to go to work, he cursed at her and told her that if she didn't leave, he was going to call the police. And in that moment, she knew his heart. She knew the truth about him. And it might just be that if we want to encounter God, that we're going to encounter God in the poor lying across our pathway. And that as we respond to them, God would release the blessing, the wealth of our inheritance in Jesus Christ as we care for those who are disadvantaged. We need humility to do that, don't we? Walk humbly with your God. See, what I'm saying is that justice becomes a lifestyle when we walk humbly with our God. This tension between justice and mercy, 
It's not something we resolve intellectually. It's something that we integrate into a, a lifestyle. And it's something that only God can resolve in real time in a person's life. Ultimately, it's fulfilled in Jesus, isn't it? I think Micah, without knowing it, he's pointing us towards Jesus. Jesus is the one who always listens to the Father. Jesus is the one who always identifies with the sinner. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see there God standing in solidarity with the victims. You know, the crucifixion of Jesus is the greatest injustice in the world, and there's God in Jesus, the, the victim, in solidarity with those who have been hurt. When we look at the cross, at the very same time, we also see forgiveness for all who have perpetrated injustice, for all who have been those wounding the world. For the cross is the greatest sign of God's love and self-giving for those who have rebelled. God is justice. God is mercy. And the good news is God is here, walking with us in Jesus Christ. Let me thirdly and lastly suggest that a, pro a prophetic walk requires the humility to walk with Jesus. To walk with Jesus. It's a long walk and it's a daily walk. I say it's a long walk because one of the hallmarks of a prophetic ministry is a, the, the call to live with the future in mind. I love what Pastor Aaron preached. Didn't Aaron do a great job preaching last Sunday? He, he took us to Micah 4 and this beautiful vision of peace at the end of time. And Micah, you know, gives that, that's in four before we get to six. He's saying, live with this vision of peace. That's the future. My wife and I just finished binge watching a band of brothers. And, you know, this, band of brothers is that space between D-Day and V-Day. The victory is won on the shores of Normandy. But the victory isn't complete until the, uh, the, the allies march into Berlin. And you and I live in that space. On the cross of Jesus Christ, sin, death, and evil are defeated. But there's still a long walk to go. But we're encouraged, we're given hope by the vision of the future. That someday all will be well. So it's a long walk, but it's also a daily walk. And the prophets call God's people to live in the presence in the presence of God, in the present. Well, I love the question in verse 3. God's going, so you've given up just, uh, justice, really. Well, how is that? Have I wearied you? Have I worn you out? That's the language, by the way, of burnout and exhaustion. That's what we would say. God said, have I burned you out? The implication is, I can give you the strength you need to walk through the wounds of this world as an agent of justice. Don't look to yourself, look to me. Quickest way to get burned out is not to be aware of your own limits or that God's power exceeds our limits. That's the tension between realizing it's not all dependent on us because God is giving me the power. On the other hand, he does call me to action and to trust him with what is right here in front of me. Jesus is walking with you. Jesus is walking with you through the valley of the shadow. Jesus is walking with you as he invites you to step out of the boat onto the sea. Jesus is walking with those who are walking to Emmaus in despair because the tomb is empty. Jesus is keep inviting us to keep in step with the Spirit as the Apostle Paul uh, challenges us to do. Because Jesus is guiding us, encouraging us, empowering us, challenging us, tempering us, and strengthening us on this journey. What is good 
And what does the Lord require of us? Well, he will tell you as you walk with him each day. And he has told you. It's a prophetic walk. It's a humble walk. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to let Rachel Denhollander have the last word this morning because she is so articulate. And she gives us a great vision of what it means in our modern world to hold together justice and mercy. These are her words. It's kind of an extended portion of her impact statement to Larry Nasser in the court. She addresses the perpetrator. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on the basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay the penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all its utter depravity and horror without mitigation without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and for you to be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation, and I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. And this is why I pity you. Because when a person loses the ability to define good and evil, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. When a person can harm another human being, especially a child, without true guilt, they have lost the ability to truly love. Larry, you've shut yourself off from every truly beautiful and good thing in this world that could have and should have brought you joy and fulfillment. And I pity you for it. You could have had everything you pretended to be. Every woman who stood up here truly loved you as an innocent child. Real, genuine love for you and it did not satisfy. Let's pray. God, you are walking with Rachel and all who carry the wounds of this world. And God, you are walking with Larry and all of us who have inflicted wounds. You are walking with us. You are carrying those wounds in your body. Now we pray that you'll release your Holy Spirit into this room, into our lives, that we might be the body of Jesus Christ and that we might walk with him. Amen.
For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.